T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Be supportive. Go to Chinatowns. Um, go to your Asian restaurants or, or your Chinese restaurants at this point and uh, experience them and realize that there's a greater opportunity on your way of going to the restaurant of getting hit by a car or some sort of other tragic event than obviously contracting anything. That's the voice of Doug Roth, founder and president of Playground Hospitality here in Chicago, talking about the impact of the coronavirus on Chicago's Chinatown. This is WBBM's In-Depth, where we take a deep dive into a story we're telling on the air. I'm Cisco Kudu. This week, we're discussing the fast-spreading, deadly coronavirus, including the impact on international travel, global manufacturing, and even the financial hit in Chinatown. It's now in 25 countries. Let's talk about some of the current headlines involving the coronavirus. Michelle Cortez is a health reporter at Bloomberg News, based in Minneapolis, Michelle, it hasn't even been that long since we've heard about this, and yet it is spread to 25 countries. What has it been? Just a few weeks. We started hearing about it in early January, so it's only been a little over a month, actually. There were some cases, they believe, uh, moving through China in December and maybe even as early as November, but um, but we didn't know about it in the U.S. and in the West. And virtually everything that we know about the virus is new because the virus itself is brand new. We're learning where it came from, which they believe is in bats. We're learning how dangerous it is in terms of how deadly it is, thinking that about 1% to 2% of people who get it, perhaps maybe a little bit lower, might die from it, and how transmissible it is. That means how many people an infected person can actually get sick and um, that number is also in flux still so there's a lot still to learn the fact that it is new seems like that would create an even bigger challenge for health officials and doctors all around the world as they really for several weeks now have been rushing to try to figure out this virus it's actually so amazing how much public health officials have done in such a short period of time. Maybe it's a little bit worrisome how many other outbreaks and pandemics we've seen, but they really did kind of seem to hit the ground running with this one a little bit, even amid some questions about how open China was in the beginning. But they very quickly sequenced the virus, which allowed which allowed people at CDC and other places to actually come up with tests so that we could determine if it if people were infected, they're already working on antiviral medicines that might help patients who are infected. They have some processes in place to start on vaccines. It's absolutely unbelievable when you think back to how it took us decades to do anything about HIV. You know, we still don't have an awful lot for Ebola. And um, literally, we're talking in weeks, and there's progress on the ground against coronavirus. It's astonishing. So is there a sense among health officials that they have this under control, or at least as under control as they can, uh, understanding that they're not necessarily going to scream all-out panic? You know, everyone, everyone worry and, and run in the streets, or they're going to try to project calm. But are you getting a sense that they really do feel like as best they can at this stage, they do have it under control? You know, I really don't get that feeling. It's a little bit unnerving 
to myself that we can see that there are so few cases in the U.S. certainly and in a lot of other places in the world. But when you're talking to the experts in this space, they're not reassured by the low numbers that we're having here, because this is one of those situations like the shampoo commercials from, you know, a couple of decades ago where, you know, one person uses it and then two people and then four and then eight. That's the kind of of logarithmic increase in infections that you can see. And so we saw in China in early January, we were counting infections just based on, you know, 10, 15, 20, 20. And then all of a sudden it was increasing by 1,000 and 2,000 infections a day. And so the fact that we have such low numbers other places in the world is not as reassuring as you might think. They're afraid that we're going to start hitting these high rates of increase. And it sounds like all it would take is a few more cases that maybe aren't caught right away, and that could lead to a big spread. That's exactly it. We have to remember that in China, there was a viral vector. That virus, it went from an animal to a human, and that happened in a specific place. And we don't know how many people in that location were infected. And then those people were able to pass it to the next person and the next person. In the rest of the world, we don't have that natural you know, transmogrification happening. We don't, in, in outside of China, we don't have that natural blending happening where people are getting infected because of the virus jumping from animals to humans. So what we have to have is just humans passing it to other humans. So we have a little bit better possibility of control, but that's the key. That's exactly it. Where you put your finger, Cisco, is that if it's human to human transmission, if that starts happening on any kind of a sustained basis, then we could all be in trouble. And public health officials are paid to worry about that. And the rest of us just pray that it doesn't happen. Well, and we're seeing the public health officials here in the United States, as you touched on earlier, I and mean, they really are getting into gear, working hard, making progress. However, this has now reached some 25 countries. I'm imagining that not every country has the robust public health system and processes in place like we do here in the United States. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And if you get it, if the virus takes a hold in another country where they don't have a very strong public health system and they don't have a good medical system, then that place will become another hotspot that can start Uh, you know, transmitting it to other parts of the country and we can just start getting tentacles going everywhere. That's exactly the concern. The WHO has been working really hard on that when they declared a public health emergency of international concern. It was entirely because of that point exactly that you just made. They're afraid that it's going to get established in Africa. They're afraid it's going to get into North Korea. They're afraid that it's going to get into other places where it can take hold and start having a situation like they have in China without the ability to shut it all down. Well, North Korea seems like a place where there would really not be any public health system in order to take care of it. I think that there's almost nothing in North Korea. The WHO said on their call today that the North Korean government is very anxious about it, which I completely understand that we're all anxious about it. But, yeah, I don't think that they have many processes in place at all. And WHO said that that they're planning to step up and help out. So 
We'll see. I'm glad you mentioned those phone calls because you're on those regular conference calls with the the World Health Organization. Uh, Is that one of the places where you're getting a sense? I don't want to say that they just have fingers crossed or something like that, but where there is this concern that we're not out of the woods yet. Yeah, I would say it's definitely not a fingers crossed effort at all. That's why we're seeing all of these more aggressive approaches that the United States got some early criticism for when we started putting some restrictions on on airline passengers coming out of Hubei province and out of China in general, when they airlifted some people to the United States and said, you have to be in a quarantine for 14 days, even though you seem and feel completely healthy. You can't go into the general population of the United States. We're going to basically keep you on a military base for two weeks. So all of those steps that the U.S. has been doing and and other countries have been doing the same, those are all very aggressive methods to try to keep the virus under control. And also, as you mentioned earlier, they're not trying to shut it down entirely. They know that's not going to work. What they're trying to do is slow it down so that when some people start showing up, the systems will be ready to handle them. Like, I mean, I have to say, I think in the U.S. they've really done a a brilliant job. We've had, you know, fewer than two dozen cases. There's only been two situations where an infected patient passed it on to their spouse. We haven't seen any other human-to-human transmission, and that's because they got on those right away. Hopefully there's not anything bubbling up that we don't know about, but certainly the ones we know about, we're not seeing it spread and spread and spread. That seems to emphasize the importance of people who know that they have visited that region and they start feeling these symptoms to report it right away instead of thinking, oh, it's nothing, it's just a cold. That's exactly it. I think the unsung hero of this outbreak has honestly been the public education and outreach effort. Everybody was talking about, you know, when you, when they were taking the temperatures of folks getting off airplanes, like how that was going to be helpful. But in fact, they caught, I think, only one, maybe two people through that process. In fact, what's happened is those people who got the little cards that said, hey, here's a virus, it's new. If you develop a cough or a fever, make sure that you tell the doctor right away that you have it. The first person in the United States, he went to just an, to a walk-in clinic, and as soon as he walked in, he put a mask on because he knew he might be infected. That's the breakthrough that we've had here. It's really astonishing how effective the knowledge and the understanding and the awareness has been. That's really what's controlling the virus to the extent that we have outside of China. It has only been a matter of weeks since we've heard about the coronavirus, and it is now spread to 25 countries all around the world, including here in the United States. Two cases in Chicagoland, a husband and wife, but that's it so far in Chicagoland. Let's talk to a medical professional about what we now know about this virus that maybe we didn't know just a couple of weeks ago. Dr. Jennifer Grant is an infectious disease physician with North Shore University Health System. We talked to her when this story first broke, and now we're reconnecting with her. Uh, Doctor, are there things we know now that we didn't know a few weeks ago? Yeah, definitely. There have been some updates on how we understand uh, what this virus is and what it does. Um, It's actually been happening very fast. One of the biggest things I guess I should mention is that since we last talked, the virus actually has a new name. Uh, We're now um, calling this disease COVID-19. And as a refresher, it's a viral illness caused by a novel coronavirus. 
which means that we didn't know this virus existed until it started making people sick in Wuhan, China at the end of December. And so all things considered, it's quite amazing that scientists have been able to isolate it, determine its genetic sequence, figure out what it is, and, you know, understand a lot about how it is spread and what kind of disease it causes. There is still a lot that we don't totally understand because this is months new. When we first talked about this, it was thought that this virus, the coronavirus, was about as dangerous as the flu. Is that still the case? So the most frequent symptom of this virus seems to be a pneumonia. Um, and about 20% of patients seem to get a very severe illness, meaning they might need to be treated in an ICU or, or basically an intensive care unit, which is more severe than how we think of the general um, seasonal flu. In When you put it in kind of perspective as to the risk to the average listener, clearly the flu is still something that you would be much more worried about living in Illinois today. You know, if we're, we want to just compare numbers, there's 29 reported cases in the United States as of today um, versus this flu season. There have been millions of flu cases in the United States, you know, since last fall. Um, so there's still the proportional risk to people here in the United States is very low. The virus, though, as we learn more about it, we do see that um, there is a spectrum of patients who do seem to get very ill, and we're thinking around 20% of the patients who are infected with it. And what can they do for those patients that get really ill from it? Is it still just uh, get them in a hospital and treat the symptoms? Essentially, yes. Um, you know, for patients who are really sick, might end up in the intensive care unit, on a ventilator, oxygen therapy, all of these things we call supportive care. There are um, antiviral drugs being studied now. Um, we just don't have enough data to know how effective they are, if they will be, you know, a promising treatment moving forward. But there's one you might have heard about um, called remdesivir that has been developed for prior coronavirus infections and is now being studied um, in this disease to see if it helps. So when it comes to uh, you know people being afraid of this, at this point it sounds like what you're saying is, at least here in the United States, there's nothing to be afraid of, at least not yet. Right, exactly. Okay. It's something that we're all watching, and you know clearly this is a concerning global epidemic, um, but it is not something right now in the United States that you should have, you know, fear in your day-to-day -day life over. We've heard a lot about people being quarantined, whether it's in China or on cruise ships or even once they get back here to the United States. Talk about that a little bit. What is quarantining? Does that mean they lock these people down? Is it designed to contain the virus and keep it from spreading? What's going on there? Yeah, the role of quarantine is to try to prevent the spread of the virus to other people. So it can work in different ways. Um, you know, we're hearing about these uh, people coming back from Wuhan who were brought back um, and placed into quarantine at various military bases. And it's essentially just isolating them from the general public. As these people were potentially exposed to coronavirus, um, and they might, if they develop you know, the incubation period, I should say, of the of this COVID-19 is thought to be no more than 14 days. So kind of if you're going to get sick, it's going to happen within 14 days of being exposed to this virus. So 
bringing these people back into the United States and putting them in isolation for 14 days, if they show no signs of symptoms, they can be cleared to go back to their regular lives, and they are at no risk of spreading the virus to anybody else. What are we looking for in order to begin really being concerned about this? As you mentioned, there's not a lot of cases in the United States so far, but we're not completely out of the woods with coronavirus, at least internationally. What would we be looking for here in the United States to say, okay, now maybe we should get worried about this? I think the... You know, if we start to see increasing cases within the United States, that's when it's going to be of more concern. And it is tricky because we're in such a global world. So there are people on planes that have potentially been exposed that are now coming back into the United States. Um, I think we have a very good public health infrastructure in the United States. So all of these local jurisdictions of, you know, public health systems are trying to keep track of people who are coming back on flights from affected areas who may have been um, exposed in any way, shape, or form and kind of keeping tabs on them. Um, you know, in Illinois in particular, we had two cases and the Department of Health tracked the contacts of these two cases and, you know, performed home quarantine for them, monitoring their, having them monitor their fever and checking in with them on a regular basis on symptoms and testing them if they were positive. And so now all of those patients um, have been clear, or not patients, I should say, all those people who were under investigation have been cleared and there were no secondary cases. So I think right now when we have a small number of cases and a really good public health system, we're able to kind of keep on top of all of this. You know, any kind of large influx of cases or a rapid rise is when we're going to start to get worried about maybe taxing our public health infrastructure a little bit. But as of now, just, you know, to be totally to have lots of reassurance, that's not the case at all in the United States. So obviously, coronavirus is impacting people's travel plans. A lot of people avoiding China and even other areas of Asia. But what about here at home? Are people changing their behavior because of coronavirus? What kind of an impact is it having at Chinatown? Doug Roth is joining us. He's the founder and president of Playground Hospitality. Doug, are we seeing any kind of an impact in Chinatown? Uh, Huge. Uh, Right now, what we're seeing is between 50 and 70 percent. Uh, and that's on a national level. Uh, Chicago is seeing about a 50% uh, decrease in business at this point, uh, which is uh, much higher than when SARS uh, was affecting uh, uh, the, this country as well as uh, the world, uh, because China at that point was perceived as a little bit more isolated and didn't have necessarily the uh, G, uh, gross domestic product that it does today. This is the case, even though there's been no, at all, no word that the coronavirus is at all present in Chinatown or that you're going to get it if you go to Chinatown, and yet people are staying away. Uh, clearly. And, 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 and my concern is uh, the fact is what happens, uh, Cisco, if in fact that you have a situation where you have Thailand or Korea or Vietnam start to have cases as well, is there automatically a sense of of fear that is now sort of embedded in people by the fact that uh, those countries now uh, are, are going to see or could see uh, additional uh, cases. And, and then it becomes all of Asia is, is, is sort of uh, on people's radar. And it, it's, it's really unfortunately based out of um, misinformation and uh, a little xenophobia. Well, yeah, I mean, if you, uh, and I think everyone would say, you're not going to catch it if you go to Chinatown. You can go there and you can enjoy a meal and you're not going to get it. 
But the people who are hearing that say, yeah, okay, you go try. I'm going to stay out here in the suburbs or the north side, south side, wherever. Well, actually, what's happened is even those restaurants are having effect, uh, are being affected as well. Uh, from everything that I've heard and, and reading as well, that it isn't only just uh, restaurants that are basically in Chinatown. But, but uh, aside from that fact, uh, you're also getting a situation, too, where we uh, have had, and, and I'm sure you're aware of it, where Chinese, the Chinese population is, for the United States, uh, if not the highest influx of, of uh, tourists, and historically, yes, they, they themselves have gone to Chinatown, but also have gone to non-Asian uh, restaurants as well. And so those are being affected. The hotels are being affected. So it's, it's obviously uh, uh, a domino effect at this point. It's got to be really, really difficult for the business owners because it's not like they can just market their way out of this. It's, it's not like you put some ads on Facebook, radio, TV, something like that, and all of a sudden the people say, okay, I'm going to go there. Well, good point. Uh, there's absolutely yeah, very few things you can do. Uh, one thing uh, that I'm seeing that's occurred uh, in San Francisco, uh, also I believe in New York, um, also I saw it today um, on Eater, and that is um, be supportive. Um, go, to, go to Chinatowns. Um, go to your Asian restaurants or, or your Chinese restaurants at this point and uh, experience them and realize that there's a greater opportunity on your way of going to the restaurant of getting hit by a car uh, or some sort of other tragic event than obviously contracting anything, including food poisoning at a restaurant. Yeah, we've already talked with a doctor who said basically you have a much greater chance of getting the flu than you do of coronavirus. I mean, exponentially greater chance. So don't live life as though you're trying to protect yourself from coronavirus, because at least at this point, it's not out there, whether you're in Chinatown or a restaurant somewhere else in the city or suburbs. At this point, it's pretty safe to say you're going to be OK. Go and enjoy the restaurant. Clearly. And, and there's nothing like, especially uh, in our <laughs> our region right now, when it's uh, starting to, you know, winter starts to drag on, you know, going to Chinatown or, or any restaurant, hopefully that you're in a position where you can uh, enjoy the environment, you feel like you're transported somewhere else, and you can leave your problems at the door. And, and that's what we try to do as restaurateurs. And uh, again, it's probably in the, in the sense of our conversation right now, more people in the world have died than or can even come close to what's going to be affected by the coronavirus. There are obviously people concerned, and they're not going to a restaurant no matter what you or I say or any health officials or anyone else. What do you say to those people? If people really are that concerned, what's obviously big today, um, and, and it's probably a whole other conversation for us, which has not necessarily been a model that's worked, is, is the delivery model. And if you like Chinese, you know, there's nothing like creating a, a great Sunday night at home with uh, Asian or Chinese food. So delivery is, is, has increased for those restaurants that right now have not necessarily seen the, um, the actual uh, walking through the door. That's things in Chinatown, another area really feeling the pinch because of coronavirus, is air travel, especially to China, but also throughout all of Asia. Joe Schwederman is with us. He's a professor of public services and director of the Chaddock Institute at DePaul University. Uh, Joe, there really seems to be no end in sight to the travel disruption. 
You know, we were uh, given a real wake-up call when airlines canceled flights really through late April, and some have actually canceled flights indefinitely, some of the smaller airlines. Um, so they're taking this as a, a long-term uh, uh, interruption of service, and, and that's meant just a lot of wrangling with uh, uh, financial losses, with people somewhat panicked about how they're going to get uh, to where they need to go to do business. And now we're seeing a lot of flights intra-Asia be canceled, so the tourism out of China has really fallen, and so the scale of this just seems to keep growing. Is that the sort of thing that can get ramped back up if they determine that coronavirus has been handled, or when it comes to all of those flights, does that take a while to get everything back in order? Yeah, that's what I keep telling people, that it looks like there's no end in sight to this. But we know with these epidemics that once things start to improve, you know, the air can clear pretty quick. No pun intended. But it's uh, uh, in this case, we're still seeing the number of uh, cases grow. Uh, but there does seem to be a sense that the mechanism is in place now to, you know, really contain this thing. And and I think we may see by March a sense that summer may be looking pretty good again. But boy, we're still uh, still early to say anything for sure. Does that make it difficult for people who by now in February would already be planning for the summer if they're going to take a trip overseas like that? Does it make it tough for them to really decide, hey, do I risk this and book something or do I just go somewhere else in the world? Oh, it makes it hugely difficult for people. They're sitting at their computer to sign, you know, to press uh, enter on buying a fare, and all these things go through their mind. And what we saw this week was really a uh, a surge in uh, avoidance, you might say, of some of the other Asian countries. You know, Singapore Airlines is pulling down flights. Vietnam has made clear that its tourism has dropped, uh, you know, huge, 40 percent or so. And uh, uh, people are thinking twice about going anywhere in Asia, and that's uh, that starts to affect, you know, global economic uh, trade flows here when we take a. Uh, you know, the fastest growing part of the world, and we uh, we reduce demand dramatically. It hasn't seemed to have affected European travel. Uh, this isn't quite like uh, some of the other outbreaks where there seems to be global concerns. Uh, that's good. Uh, you know, I can tell you, though, that uh, the number of cases in, in other countries, you know, is inching up, and we'll have to see what, what happens next. So for people who say right now, hey, I'm going to risk it, I'm going to book that trip for June or July, what would you suggest? Is this a time to make sure you get your travel insurance? I think that's right. I mean, airlines offer uh, for pretty fair price now the ability to give yourself the option to cancel. Plus, if things are bad enough, they're probably going to give you the right to cancel uh, to everyone. And I do think there's going to be just some tremendous bargains out there. And, and China is such a massive country that if this uh, if this outbreak is contained uh, you know, the ability to go to China and not go anywhere near where there's a lot of uh, outbreaks will not be too tough. Uh, you know, that said, I think we're still a few weeks away from people know uh, what things are going to look like in a few months. So as at this point, my guess is, you know, domestic travel for the summer is just going to be just going to be gangbusters because people are maybe inclined to stay home and the economy is good. And and uh, boy, it could uh, could shift a lot of traffic here to enter U.S. And at this point, there's no reason to be concerned about domestic travel. There really is no reason uh, uh, to think twice about a domestic trip. You know, there is uh, a lot of attention going to the uh, cruise uh, uh, passengers who are flying back on an airplane worrying about getting infected. But that's really a special case. There's not uh, any indication that the conditions of the air quality on, on major jets and things are, are incubators for this 
And, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, it's tricky, though, when you're talking about uh, people going to countries that are closer to the outbreak, say, India or Australia, uh, just because you have a lot more through traffic that may involve people from China. The true economic impact of coronavirus may not be known for many months. Thanks for joining us for this week's in-depth podcast. Join us next week for our discussion on how the legalization of the recreational use of marijuana is going. It's been legit for two months here in Illinois. Has the rollout been successful? Has it generated the money promised? And what does the future hold? Be sure to subscribe to receive this free podcast every Wednesday. And, of course, listen anytime for the stories that matter by listening to WBBM on the Radio.com app or on your radio. Thanks for joining us. I'm Cisco Cook. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.